This is chapter 158 of the WCBS Author Talks podcast. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. Coming up, we chat with German author Daniel Speck, whose English language debut will resonate with anyone who's the product of immigrants. Then, best-selling thriller writer Karen Slaughter tells us why she thinks women should always listen to that little warning voice in their heads. The story of humanity is one of immigration, from the earliest humans who left Africa to modern-day stories of people leaving their home countries behind for opportunities elsewhere. Why people leave and their struggles to belong are the subject of Daniel Speck's Anywhere But Home, his multi-generational story of an Italian family who moves to Germany in search of a better life. When the book was first published in German a couple of years ago, it spent 85 weeks on Germany's bestseller list. I had the pleasure of speaking with Daniel about his English language debut. Why did you want to write a multi-generational tale about immigrants? Well, because I think you can really only see the whole picture um, after three generations. Immigration is always a multi-generational thing. It's like the first immigrants arrive, they build something up, and then the second generation kind of uh, integrates into society more, and the third generation then... Um, I would say, really arrives. Or you could also say the first generation, um, you know, has all the wounds. Uh, The second generation suffers from the wounds of the parents and the third generation can only heal these wounds. So, um, yeah, I I got aware that if you really want to tell a tale about immigration, you have to do it in three three generations. I mean, just look at the, The Godfather, for example, these three movies. Uh, these are three generations. It's also interesting to see the progression from people who are so uh, uh, immediately connected to the to that first homeland, and then yeah. as time goes on, those future generations become attached to what they know as their only place that they call home, which is the second homeland for the for the earlier generations. Exactly. Exactly. The first generation who arrives is always in that kind of, you know, double identity, like, where do I belong? I, I'm not yet American, um, but I'm no longer Italian, that kind of thing. Uh, and the second generation, they define themselves as, you know, as citizens of the, of the country of arrival. But then the question is, will they really integrate into society or not? And if they don't, um, for one reason or another then the third generation will feel um, not accepted and then go back into some kind of nostalgic fundamentalism about, well, I'm really not at home here. I really belong to my grandfather's um, homeland, which often is a fantasy. You know, this is your English language debut, and I think a, a lot of American readers might be surprised to learn that the story we're talking about now actually doesn't take place in America. We're talking about an intra-European immigration story, which I think, uh, you know, most people in the U.S., they just think people want to come to the U.S., and they don't think about immigration in that sense. Well, that's that's interesting, um, because I think immigration is is really a human story. It's it's a universal story. Humans migrate. I mean, we all come from Africa. We all have an immigration background. And um, the Italians went to different places. First, they went to America. That was like the end of the 
19th century, there was the big wave of emigration to uh, New York, to Boston, to America. And then after that, we could call it the American wave, the second country where they went was Germany. Germany was, for them, it was like the American dream. It was basically the same. It was like, okay, if we go to Germany, everything will be better. Um, we can reinvent ourselves. Um, you find the same tropes in their tales and in the language that which they use. There is um, a beautiful museum of emigration on the island of Salina, where my novel is uh, situated. And that is like the mirror of Ellis Island. It's like a mirror museum. They, uh, While on Ellis Island, they tell the tale of the immigrants. In, in Salina, they tell the tale of the departure. Hmm. And um, the reasons why people go to another place are basically the same because um, they have high unemployment where they live, uh, they can't make a living, and they have dreams. They want to. They also want to free themselves. And when Italians came to Germany, that was uh, from the 50s to the 70s of the 20th century, um, it was also... Um, part of women's liberation. It's like when you were a woman, woman and you emigrated, you could be free of the constraints of a traditional patriarchal family system. And moving up to the north in Germany, you could, you know, live a life with much more freedom. And uh, and then it was the wild 60s where, you know, all the traditions were um, were put upside down. So um, the, the interesting thing about migration is that it's really uh, uh, the theme is really identity, like who am I and who do I want to become? When the book was published in German, the title was Bella Germania, and yeah. in English now we're, uh, it's titled Anywhere But Home. Why that kind of change? Well, Bella Germania is is something that works in Germany um, because in Germany we always say, okay, we 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 do holidays in Bella Italia. <laughs> ah. So it's kind of an ironic uh, title in Germany, where you say, okay, now the really Bella country is not Italy, but it's Germany, um, and it's ironic because Germany is not known for being Bella; it's known for being, you know, successful and uh, industrious and so on, but. Beauty is really uh, a major, um, a major thing in Italy. So we felt that um, it works in Germany, but it doesn't work in other countries. For example, in Italy, where the book is published too, um, it also has another title. Uh, it's called "Volevamo andare lontano," which means we wanted to go far away. So in English, we we were looking for a title that conveys the sense of, you know, leaving your home, um, going away with, uh, you know, with a bittersweet notions like it can be better any anywhere else, but uh, there might also be some nostalgia involved. How do you define home yourself? Uh, for me, it's it's friends and family. It, for me, home is is a feeling. For me, home is not... Um, not connected to, I would say, to a national identity. It's more connected to to a way of thinking, to a way of relating, and it's basically the people I feel uh, I feel at home with. 
Now, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that uh, fast Italian and German cars uh, feature prominently in this book. And you, I'm going to guess you must be a huge car buff. <laughs> Uh, yes, yes, I am. I, I love Italian classic cars, and uh, the car on the cover is actually mine, uh, which, uh, which, with, with which I did the book presentation in Italy. So I drove it down, and then I went from city to city to present the book. Actually, the the um, the novel is set uh, in, a, in a in a car company in Milan, um, and that's not by chance because. Um, Immigration is really connected to mobility. And when all these Italians came up to Germany to work here, it was also a time of mass mobilization. So it was a time when uh, when people could afford a car and the car was really the family thing. It was like the, the childhood memories would be on the backseat of the car. So the car had a really nostalgic family value uh, during that time. And it was the prerequisite um, for traveling. For example, the Germans in the 50s, they did their first exotic holidays crossing the Alps, going to Italy in their VW Bug. And the uh, the Italians came up with their Fiat Cinquecento um, to drive to Germany. So, um, yeah, it's about mo- mobilization and you know, I just love Italian cars because they're so beautiful. They're, there's nothing more beautiful than Italian cars. Actually, I had wanted to ship my car over to, to the U.S. and do a book tour there. Um, but, you know, due to the pandemic, um, that didn't work out. But I hope to be able to do it next year. Oh, that would be awesome. Americans do love their cars. You'd, you'd draw a lot of attention, I'm sure. <laughs> Well, the funny thing with these cars that I'm talking about, it's the company is called Iso Rivolta. And these cars had American engines in it. They had the Corvette engine, like a 5.4 liter, liter um, V8 Corvette engine. So they were hybrid cars. They said, okay, let's, uh, Ferraris break down all the time, Maseratis break down all the time, so let's get um, a solid American uh, engine, a solid gearbox. But then... Um, Let's have a body with Italian style. That was the idea. But it's not a book about cars, you know. Uh, it's a book about, uh, it's basically a, uh, really a book, a book about family secrets. But it's, since it's a family that travels between different countries, often family stories um, evolve around a house. You know, there's a heritage story around a house and people are born in the same bed where they die and then the children uh, get the house and so on. So my family, the family Marconi, is a family who leaves their place of birth, goes to another country, and then travels back and forth and has to decide, like, like, where do we belong to? Are we Italians? Are we Germans? So basically, the house becomes a car. I didn't think about it in that way until you just put it together for me. (laughs) You know, the, the protagonist, uh, Julia, uh, she's conceived in that car. It's like her father steals the car from his father, and then Julia is conceived in the car, and at the end, Julia gets the car as an inheritance. Um, so that is really the red thread um, of, of the novel. 
You also adapted this novel into a TV miniseries. What was it like to bring the story to life in that way? Oh, it was it was an interesting experience because actually I wrote the screenplay and the novel parallelly at the same time. Um, and it was made into a miniseries in three parts for German television. Um, it's it's a funny experience because as a novel writer you can really follow your characters and you can you can do what you want. If you write a miniseries for television, of course there are a lot of constraints. There are budget constraints. There are constraints in, in, in length, and there there are other people who you know have their ideas about uh, how the screenplay should uh, should be developed, um, like the director and the producer and the uh, and the network and so on. So. Writing the novel for me was the joy of telling the story freely as I wanted the story to be. And and, and that's that's the biggest joy you can have as a writer because every screenwriter knows about the, the constraints that you have when, when you write a movie. So writing it as a novel was really a liberation for me. What do you want readers to really take away from, from your story? Oh, that's an interesting question. Well, maybe it's the sense that, or the realization that in families, there are these hidden messages, you know, messages that, that are being passed on from grandparents to parents, from parents to children. Um, it's, it's, like, it's like a whisper between generations. Um, and these messages are subtle, but they really drive our subconscious. They drive what we want to become, they drive our sense of identity, they drive our fears. You know, there's there's this saying by Carl Gustav Jung who, who once said, nothing has a stronger influence on the children than the unlived life of the parent. And that's really the deepest theme of the novel. Well, I encourage readers uh, to go out and pick it up if they haven't already had a chance to read it in the other seven languages it's published in. If they've been waiting, if they've been waiting for English, here it is. It's anywhere but home. We've been speaking with Daniel Speck. Thank you for your time today. Thanks, Lisa. Women feature prominently in the thriller books written by bestseller Karen Slaughter, both as victims and as those in charge. And while she admits it's a struggle to write about violence against women, she also tells us that it's equally important to tell these kinds of stories. We recently chatted about The Silent Wife, her 20th novel, and this week's summer read pick. Since she can't tell us too much without giving away the plot, she starts with where the story begins. My uh, detective, Will Tran, is called to investigate a murder at a prison, and he's approached by an inmate who says, look, I'm not guilty. I didn't commit these crimes, which, of course, most people in prison say that. They don't say, you got me. I totally belong here. But Will starts to look into this case, and he realizes not only might this guy be innocent, but someone is still committing these horrific crimes against women, and I've got to stop them. So this is your 20th book. As you mentioned, it's a Will Trent book, but you bring back characters from some of your earlier works. What was that like, and how had the characters themselves evolved over time? Well, you know, I love writing. I love writing stories about these characters that I've been um, talking to people about for about 20 years. And the case that Will is investigating is has actually uh, been 
you know, solved allegedly by a detective from one of my previous novels. So he has to investigate the investigators. Um, And unfortunately, this previous investigator's name is Jeffrey Tolliver, and he was at one point married to Will's current girlfriend, Sarah Linton. So that opens up a whole passel of messes for him, just in his relationship and also professionally. It's been quite interesting to see how that works out, but I'm not going to give anything away. (laughs) Great. What first drew you to write crime novels? You know, I love the crime genre. It's what I have always read. Going back to Nancy Drew, it's something I really enjoy. But as a writer, you know, crime is a universal fear, especially for women and crimes against women. It's something that we think about more often than we realize, whether it's, you know, we hear a noise at night or we're in a parking lot and there's a sound behind us. We're going to react differently to that than a man would. So I like to write about those little moments that scare women. And I also like to like write about women who uh, are in charge and who recover from these traumatic crimes and speak to a, a greater um, topic of how we move on from this. I like that your books don't discredit that little voice in women's heads. Because I think a lot of time people might say, oh, you're just being crazy. There's nobody following you. That guy's not going to do anything. Like, don't worry about it. But, you know, if there's a lesson to take away is that listen to your gut. Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny because I do that all the time. And I think, what do I care if this guy I'm a little creeped out by feels offended? I have to think about my safety first. Why am I subverting this ancient voice from, you know, back when we were hunters and gatherers that's telling me, you know, you need to look out for this person. And so I think it's important for women to listen to that little voice because more often than not, it can save us. Do you ever struggle, though, with writing about all that violence and in particular the violence towards women? Well, I like to put it in context, and it is a struggle to to talk about it, um, but I think it's very important to talk about it. Not talking about it isn't stopping it. What I want to do is bring some truth and honesty to it. There's nothing titillating or sexual about assault. Um, there, It's horrific. It's a trauma. In some ways, it's a murder because you take the person that woman was going to be for the rest of her life, and you kill that person, and she has to rebuild herself and figure out who she's going to be in this world post-assault. So that's something that I want to talk about in a believable way, and one of the reasons why I started writing about these crimes from a woman's perspective is I just got kind of tired of the, the usual tropes that I was seeing in crime fiction, and not to paint all guys with the same brush, but some men When they wrote about sexual assault, they would sexualize it, or they would have a woman who was assaulted, and the next chapter she's wearing leather and riding a motorcycle and smoking cigarettes, and she's this tough broad. And I know from my own experience with friends who have experienced this, that is not what happens. And I wanted to to write realistically about it and about recovery. Over the years, though, have between your research and the stories you write, are you more anxious now and more worried about the people around you? Or do you kind of lock that away and it's like, okay, that's work, that's what I do, but life is life? Well, it's a little of both, honestly. You know, I don't think it's surprising to women that there are there's a certain type of guy out there who just hates women. 
Um, and fortunately, it's a small percentage of the population, but figuring out who that guy is is, is kind of a, a quest in our lives. And I want to write about how you respond to that and the fact that we as a society let that guy not just exist, but sometimes flourish. You know, why aren't we shutting this down? Uh, because the fact is that women are 51% of the population, but we have very little control of how our lives are structured. And, you know, I want to change that. I want to have equality. I want to have women having a voice in, in how our lives should be lived. And I like, too, that in your books, for the most part, we always get the bad guy at the end, which real life isn't always that neat. Absolutely. And especially with the pandemic, I think we all want happy endings in our books now. And this certainly delivers. Before I let you go, I hear your book, Pieces of Her, is headed to Netflix. What can you tell us about that? Well, we were about three days away from principal photography when the pandemic shut everything down. But they're hoping to start up in September in Australia, which is great because the star is Tony Collette, who is also Australian. Uh, and we're hoping that it's on Netflix, streaming everywhere by the end of next year. Is the story itself being, um, you know, moved to Australia, or is it still going to be like a, a U.S. story? Oh, absolutely still a U.S. story. And, uh, you know, Tony's not going to have an Australian accent, but uh, it, there are parts of Australia that pass very well for parts of Georgia. Uh, so that's why they chose, you know, there's lots of sunshine there and there's lots of uh, palm trees because the coast of Georgia is where this story takes place. Who knew? <laughs> <laughs> well, until that happens, and I hope they get to film it on that soon, you can read Karen Slaughter's latest book, The Silent Wife. Thank you for spending some time with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. And that's where we close the book on this chapter. Next time, we dip our toes into political waters with our newsroom colleague and debut author, Linda Lopez. If you aren't already, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books. I'm Lisa Cherkovich.